Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The wife of Zelensky spends $1 million on Cartier jewelry in New York City during the recent United Nations Jamboree. A Marie Antoinette moment that speaks volumes about her, about them, and about the way that this is all going to end. And secrecy and lawfare is breaking out everywhere. The laws of innocence until proven guilty, the laws of subjudice, the right of free men and women to speak their minds within the law are all now under savage assault on both sides of the Atlantic and also here in the United Kingdom. And the war is petering out pitifully, but with the death of hundreds of thousands of poor Ukrainians sent to their demise on behalf of an empire which is rapidly turning its back upon them. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night because it's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. According to the respected United States publication, The Nation, Mrs. Zelensky, during the recent visit to New York, spent $1 million in one shop on one set of items, namely jewelry. Cartier in New York City. We've seen the receipts, more than $1 million on jewelry. That is quite a shopping spree. Assuming that she didn't only go into one shop and assuming she didn't only buy jewelry, I think we are looking at a massive series of expenditures of other people's money, the Ukrainian people's money. The British and American, French and German, taxpayers from every country in the coalition of the killing that is driving this conflict in Ukraine and forbidding it to come to a negotiated ending. That tells you two things. It tells you that there are greedy bastards who are ready to fill their own pockets, their own shoes, their own boots, their own bank accounts, their own multi-platform property empire throughout several countries. Uh, but it also tells you that they are nearing the end. Nobody spends a million dollars on jewelry if they're not expecting to need that jewelry for the future. If they are not expecting a future in Ukraine, that, it seems obvious to me, may well be obvious to you. Everyone is turning against them. There are reports this evening that Macron and Schultz 
I'm no longer on speaking terms, cannot bear to be in the same room as each other. Schultz has just had to face a public opinion poll which shows that his government of cranks and quacks and greenery fanatics is going down to a humiliating landslide defeat in the next German general election. About 15% of respondents are minded to vote for little soldier Schultz. Unbelievably, bonkers Baerbock, his Green Party partner in power, gets 18%, 3% more than him. But either way you look at it, these two are out of office and soon. Now, in Germany in particular, I can't say in France, because I've spent some considerable time there this year and never been harassed in any way as to my points of view, how I express them, and on what platform I express them. But try doing so in Germany. Germany is now a police state, although not a police state efficient enough to stop a savage assault on one of the leaders of the German opposition, the right-wing AFD, who's in hospital right now, having been savagely assaulted in the street. The family of his deputy leader has been taken for safety to Switzerland. Germany is breaking down. Germany is in dire straits, economically, politically, and in terms of democracy. In Germany, it is literally a crime to make fun of a German minister if that satire is hampering them from carrying out their duties. And if it wasn't, then it wouldn't be satire. Satire is dead in Germany. And if you think I'm making that up, I have personally met someone arrested by police, turning up mob-handed with weapons at his house and at his elderly mother's house in order to affect the address, uh, the arrest. In Germany, that happens. It's happened historically. But in Britain, it hasn't before now happened. In Britain, we fought and for a time stood alone against that kind of police state. It was fear of such a Gestapo which fortified the British people in 1940 and 1941 when for a short time, but a crucial time, a time that changed the world, we stood alone with our Commonwealth allies and some who had fled from Nazi-occupied countries. And if we had not stood there would have been no more Second World War, even before Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia, got underway. In Britain, it was fear of the midnight knock on the door, the dawn raid. In Britain, it was the fear of a demand for our papers in the street for no reason, with no due cause. No cause to show, just show your papers to anyone in uniform. No crime of speaking freely. No crime of 
standing up for what you believe in, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. No cancellation of elections. Elections took place in Britain throughout the entirety of the Second World War. And it was our belief in Britain that we would never have this kind of police state, which certainly was held by the vast majority of members of parliament during the nearly 30 years in which I sat in the House of Commons. That no longer exists. That Britain has gone. There are reports, I'm trying to get to the bottom of them, of a blogger in Bristol on air having his house raided by police officers, several of them, when presumably there's crime in Bristol that could be being investigated because of what he was saying. Your house raided by police because of what you are saying, not what you are doing, not what you're encouraging other people to do. In this case, the man was talking about the Sieg Heiling Jack booting in the Canadian Parliament, something which I did myself. What's that noise at the door? Are we really going quietly into that good night where an unknown vlogger with scarcely any audience at all can be raided by the police because he's talking about high heel Jack Trudeau, Sieg Heiling? an SS veteran in the audience of the Canadian Parliament? Seriously, is that the Britain we want to live in? That our grandfathers fought so that we might not. I see another case today. And I'm cheery of even raising it because I don't know what the status is of a very well-known person the leader of a British political party, a famous thespian who talks a lot of bollocks from time to time, raided by five police officers today in a London in the grip of a knife and gun crime wave where children are not safe to get on and off a school bus, where children are routinely murdered in some cases by other children. Now, I don't know what the raid was all about. Let me say right up top, if they're on their way to me now, I don't take drugs. I've never even seen drugs. I don't even drink alcohol. I abhor violence. I don't advocate the breaking of any laws or the destruction of any public property. But the mere act of talking about a phenomenon that everybody knows exists, namely the blade-running saboteurs who are damaging public property in their campaign against the Ulez cameras in outer London, gets you a raid with five police officers? I very much hope not, Mr. Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, because at the very least, this is a grotesque waste of police resources at a time when the population of London 
is living in fear and alarm because of the armed criminals that are roaming, it would appear, almost every street. And of course, there's the double standard involved. A man called Chris Packham on BBC News talked about how it was time, as far as he was concerned, for law-breaking. He said it, law-breaking in defense of the latest quackery, the climate change campaign. Why are people allowed to break the law and advocate for others to break the law, to just stop oil, but other people are subject to a massive overweening police raid on their private residence for advocating what it is that they have advocated. That's a question read in Britain. Even the Prime Minister of Great Britain at the Conservative Party conference not only declared that a politician in Scotland had been charged when she hasn't, but convicted when she hasn't even been charged. This total irresponsibility, this total dereliction of basic principles of natural justice, of British justice, of the proprieties which people in his position are expected, rightly expected, to observe has gone completely out of the window. He who shall not be named for fear of algorithmic suppression of this show, and I'm not making that up, I cannot mention his name because if I do, the audience of this show will be very substantially constricted by platforms on which it is being broadcast, has not been charged with any crime, let alone convicted of any crime, but has been deplatformed across most of the platforms he was previously broadcasting to millions of people about. It's not just him, it's them that have been told they can no longer watch this person who has not even been charged with a crime. That's the madness which has taken grip of our society. And of course, it could happen to anybody. It might one day even happen to you. You have to stand up for everybody's right to speak or else forfeit the right yourself one day perchance to speak your own truth to an audience that wants to hear you. The leader of the Slovakian government, the new prime minister of Slovakia, who's just won a general election on a platform 
No more war, no more money for the war, no more weapons to the war. The people voted for him, elected him. Then all the envelopes started coming in from the other ruling political parties in the European Union, like him, fellow European Union leaders. And when he opened the envelopes, there was no congratulations therein. There was threat and blackmail and demands that he recant on everything he said in order to get elected, that he implement the reverse of what the people of Slovakia have just voted for in the last few days. Poland is out under pressure in an upcoming Polish election. The Polish government is washing its hands with the Ukraine problem, not just on weapons, but on the economy, on migration, on the use of Poland as the conduit for every mercenary crackerjack on his way for 1,500 a day to get himself killed on the Ukrainian steppe at the onset of winter. The Polish government is no longer prepared to cooperate with the Zelensky regime, and even more seriously. The Ukrainian forces, more than 10,000 of them now, have taken advantage of a hotline set up by Russia through which they can surrender safely and have no more part of the war. This war, as every single heavyweight newspaper and commentator knows, though only some of them have had the honesty to share that knowledge with their readers, viewers, and listeners. Everybody knows this war has been lost, that when the Russians advance, they will advance exactly as far as they want to advance that the counter-offensive, expensively purchased in blood and treasure, has been a complete failure. And yet still, we have psychopaths like Ben Wallace of Balaclava saying that one more push, the Ukrainians can do it. Give them the tools, as Sunak said today and the Ukrainians will finish the job. They're all lying. And moreover, they know that you know that they're all lying. But they simply cannot stop this stream of excrescence that spews from within them. Because of course, when the Ukrainian resistance collapses, they are all going to be exposed as the liars that took your money, took your freedoms, took away your legal protections from state policing for political purposes. It's going to be a bumpy night. You better fasten your seatbelt.
It's the mother of all talk shows. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. As I speak, I have just read that Scott Ritter, a regular guest on the Mother of All Talk Shows, has again been banned by YouTube, his account closed. I'm almost speechless. Who will they be coming for next? Well, actually, not necessarily a user of Twitter, X, but the owner of Twitter, Elon Musk is now subject to lawfare by the European Union, by several European governments, by the American government, by the President of the United States, who repeatedly threatens to investigate Musk, his business on Twitter and his other businesses. Why? Because Musk is against him because Musk has declared he's going to vote for Trump, the ultimate lawfare case, rather than Biden. And he's not going to allow the FBI and the CIA to run his public square, which is what Twitter always purported to be. I give fair warning that I myself am in a legal case against the old Twitter, which Unfortunately, Elon Musk has had to inherit. But I'm wondering if by the time this case gets to court, whether Elon Musk will still be a thing. I do hope he's got good security. And I do hope that he has good legal counsel to defend his policies on Twitter, now freer than it has ever been, though not yet free enough. And so we're running a poll on it. Will the deep state bring down Elon Musk over Ukraine? Well, you can vote on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, on my Twitter account on X, on the YouTube community uh, poll, and on the YouTube stream. If you are on the YouTube stream watching this show, please subscribe to my YouTube channel long as I've still got it. And like the show if you like it. You can vote yes or you can vote no. Will the deep state bring down Elon Musk 
over Ukraine. Because in the end, that's what so much of everything is now all about. Phone numbers, if you want to comment on what I've said or didn't, then if you're in the UK or Ireland, it's entirely free of charge. It's 0808196552. 0808196552. If you're in the US or Canada, equally toll free, it's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. That's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. If you're in the rest of the world, it's four four two zero three nine double six two six two five. Four four two zero three nine double six two six two five. Get dialing now. You might end up on the show. Well, uh, one man who has had a long time seat, season ticket in the inner circles of British politics, in the parliament itself, and as a distinguished commentator, author, and writer, and also an expert on Ireland, about which I want to touch on briefly, is Kevin Marr, who joins us here on the Mother of Old Talk Shows. Kevin, welcome back. Uh, to Evening, the George. show. I promise you uh, we'll come to the uh, Northern Ireland situation, but I wondered if uh, you were as unimpressed by the Conservative conference uh, today and yesterday in Manchester as I have been. It's, it's been a very flat uh, week at the governing party. Um, Richard Sunak's speech today, I don't think, brought the gravity um, of where the country finds itself. I think that's, that's I would start by, by summing it up. Um, Sunak um, in power as Prime Minister for just 12 months after the dismal interregnum of his predecessor, Liz Truss, and the, and the hiatus and the huge economic damage that was caused by her 49-day premiership last year. So Mr. Sunak setting his stall out uh, as he saw it, uh, introducing himself uh, Sunak, the man as well, and uh, no, it was a fluid performance. You, you can't take that away from him. He's, he's you know, he's, he's pretty fluent. But this was a pretty content-free um, address. As I say, given the gravity of the, of the issues that, that the country faces, we're in a cost of living crisis. We've got negligible economic growth. He did actually at one point boast that, that Britain had the fastest growth in the, in the G7, which is which is a class in the in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. We've got 0.3% growth at the moment, so uh, whoopee day. Um, he didn't address the crisis in our public services, particularly in the National Health Service, where we've got 7 million people waiting for elective treatments, partly as a backlog, obviously, of COVID. But actually, the problem stems from huge chronic underinvestment in the NHS for the best part of the last 13, 14 years. Of course, that's the paradox. Sunak is the man who's the, the new face, if you like. But the Conservatives have been in power since May 2010, 13 years. So what, what Sunak was trying to pull off today, I think, was, was if I can call it this, the, the John Major trick, which is, of course, John Major, as you will well know, uh, George, replaced Mrs Thatcher after 11 years uh, and went on 18 months later to win the 1992 uh, general election. And I think Sunak's trying to do something similar, which is to say, um, we've had a long period where, where, you know, other people were running the show. You can't blame that on me. I'm a new face. Why don't you give me a chance? And that was very much, I think, the tenor 
uh, with his pitch today, which is which is the try that emulates uh, what Joe Major managed to pull off by winning the 1992 general election. Well, I recall that general election, of course, very vividly. And John Major did poll the largest number of conservative votes ever polled by anyone, including uh, his rather more illustrious uh, predecessors, Churchill, Thatcher. He beat them all. He did it uh, with a soapbox, literally, uh, and uh, an old-fashioned uh, bus coach, we used to uh, call them. Uh, um, he's no John Major, though, is he? He's not. I mean, I mean, Rishi Sunak is uh, he's a bit of a curiosity. He's, he, in, that, in that classic phrase, he's risen without trace. You know, we could have a situation here where Rishi Sunak, having just been elected in 2015 to the House of Commons, um, leaves it by 2024 if he doesn't win the next general election. He's a classic global citizen. You know, he's, 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 you know, he was a non-dom in America for a period. He studied abroad. You know, he's, 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 he's a man of means, clearly, and his wife is, is obviously super rich. So there's it, it's, it's a quite jarring tone when you address your party and, by definition, the country, and you've got nothing to say about the cost of living crisis that is crippling ordinary families in this country. Millions of people wondering by Christmas whether they're going to be turfed out of their homes because of high interest rates. We've got sore away problems with inflation, particularly food inflation and fuel inflation. And of course, the weather's starting to turn as well, which means we, we enter that very difficult period for the National Health Service as well. So, so as I say, the gravity of the problems that Britain faces, you know, if you, if you beam down from Mars and listen to, as you see that speak for an hour in Manchester today, you would have thought, well, everything seems to be pretty, going pretty well in this place. And then, of course, that's very far from, from reality. And that, of course, is, you know, is emphasised by the fact that his party is between 16 and 19 points behind in the opinion polls, has been for quite some time. So, so this was, I think, for the Conservatives, a kind of make-or-break conference. We saw an awful lot of show-ponying by some of Sunak's colleagues who were looking to, uh, looking to succeed in potentially even next year. So there's a lot of Ill, Ill discipline in the Conservative Party. Liz Truss's predecessor, um, came and, and spoke to a pack room about her uh, sort of radical thoughts on economic deregulation, which, as I said, nearly crippled the, the country last year. So, so she had not gone away. And some of his other, other colleagues are looking to, uh, to succeed him as well. So, so it's a party in a bit of a mess, governing a country, I think, that is in a real mess. Um, and as I say, I just don't think his address today, and I think it will start to unravel in coming days, was equal to the challenges that Britain faces. Well, he's not Snow White, uh, but the seven dwarves are there uh, trying to succeed him. Uh, I lived in a time, Kevin, when 10 of Harold Wilson's cabinet would have been more than capable and highly recognizable to the public uh, to succeed him in the afternoon. And most of them were trying to do just that almost every yes. afternoon. I could rattle them off, but only you and I uh, would remember them. Uh, this is a cabinet of dwarves. I mean, if if Liz Truss is the uh, is regarded as a papabile, could be Pope again, then it's a very barren field, isn't it? It, it is. It's extraordinarily weak. Um, you know, we seem to have an age now where, where cabinet ministers. Um, come and go, as I said, rise without trace often. You know, usually in my line of work, track the form of, of, uh, of the ponies to, to make sure you understand who they are and where they've come from. And it is a desperately unimpressive 
um, conservative front bench. And of course, that's reflective of the fact that you know they've been in power for a very long time, and you end up basically at a point, particularly with junior ministers, where it becomes Bobby's turn, um, and 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 that matters because you know the longer you're in power, the less things work for you. Now, you end up, in a sense, and this is where Sunak is a little bit today, repudiating your own government's past. You know, he's trying to say today, look, you know, this terrible, terrible sort of situation, he's, he's gone on about, about politics, he's broken. And he's like, well, you know, seriously, you've been in power for 13 years. Who's broken it? You know, his, his two signature moves today, which were announced, um, you know, over, over a couple of weeks again, because the century is breaking down, he's well trained because of the loot. We're scrapping HS2, High Speed Rail 2, which is supposed to go from London, Euston to Birmingham and then on to Manchester. And then it was supposed to go on to Sheffield and Leeds. Now, they scrapped one part of the Y route last year. And, and the, the assumption was that the route to Manchester was at least safe. And of course, that's what's been scrapped today. So, so you know, Sunak has done this because he thinks it's a waste of money. You know, it's, it's, it's gobbling up too much public money. Um, you know, his predecessor. They, you know, Boris Johnson, um, you know, David Cameron, Theresa May, and George Osborne, who was Chancellor, of course, for the first six years of this Conservative government, implacably opposed to scrapping HS2. So, so Sunak's here kind of repudiating what his own party has done in government. I think, I think that's a very dangerous moment for, for party government to kind of say, you know, we, you know, we, we, we've kind of gone around in a big circle and we want to go again in a, in a different direction. He talks about the lack of intellectual coherence, I think, that, that, that afflicts the Conservative Party at the moment. You've got lots of strands, you know, right-wing populism. You've, you've, got, you've got a kind of one-nation tradition that, that's trying to reassert itself. And you've got managerial MBA, Rishi Sunak, who sort of comes along and sort of says, let me try and fix problems and run things a bit better. Except, you know, he, he said a few months ago that he had five key priorities, reducing inflation, interest rates, growing the economy, sorting out the NHS and the small boats issue with, with migrants coming across the English Channel. And on pretty much any one of those measures, he's miles away at the moment. Now, inflation will start to fall back naturally because of, because of international factors, so it's not really anything to do with him. And again, you know, these five totemic policy achievements that he's, he's asked us to measure them against barely were mentioned in his speech today. You know, there's very little about the economy, very little about, about, about his government's record. But it's amazing, really, that he managed to have this out for 60 minutes. But he did manage He did manage to do that. But I sense it will start to unravel. Because, I mean, the key, the key thing was, was, was this issue about HS2, which he says, by cancelling the route from Birmingham to Manchester, it will save £36 billion, obviously an, an awful lot of money. Now, he's saying he will reinvest that in local services and local transport priorities, rail and road, across the north of the Midlands. The only problem is he starts rattling off in his speech, places that are, that are likely to benefit. But some of these places have already, have already been previously announced. It's the classic thing of bundling together and repackaging something you've already announced. And again, that's the hallmark of a government that's lost kind of internal coherence and doesn't really have an awful lot to say for itself and, and to give people a real justification for voting for them for another five years. And I think that is what today will symbolise that the, the, you know, the, the cupboard is empty in terms of solid policy ideas. There's nothing in his speech about housing. There's nothing about perhaps changing the planning system to speed up infrastructure projects in the future. There's nothing about how he's going to support families through this winter as well. He's just kind of hoping that inflation falls over the winter, as I say, because mainly of international factors, 
And that then eases some of the cost of living pressures and also some of the industrial disputes, which again, were not mentioned at all in his speech. Now, there's a real sense of malaise in Britain at the moment. Nothing seems to work. You know, you phone up at eight o'clock to try and get a GP's appointment and you're 30th in the queue. You know, you go to A&E, you're stuck there for, for six hours. You know, you can't catch a train because we've got industrial disputes. And if we didn't, the train services are terrible anyway. You know, so the real set of kind of malaise, and this is the difficulty, that when you've been in power a very long time, who's to blame for the state of the country? The uh, uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Uh, it seems the Conservatives were uh, disco dancing. I saw an extraordinary video of Pretty Patel, remember her, uh, uh, bopping with, uh, with Nigel Farage uh, to, I can't take my eyes off you. They couldn't take their eyes off Farage, could they? Do you see any possibility that he'll be back into the Tory party? It's a, it's a perfect metaphor because I think certainly for conservative grassroots, they look at Nigel Farage and see a kind of lost prince. They see somebody that, that, who personifies and embodies their kind of politics, which is not only just about Brexit, but is this kind of buccaneering style of politics where, where there's a bit of swagger and a bit of assuredness. And, he, and, and when they measure Farage against, as, of, as you say, the, the kind of you know, cabinet of kidneys and, and, and you know, the kind of Rishi Sunak, who's as, you know, the embodiment of managerial politics, they look at Farage and think, actually, we prefer a blast of the old religion. We prefer somebody that, that can actually put a few words together and speak from the heart and leads from the front. Um, so so, so Farage, Farage you know, is, 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 you know, is welcomed, as I say, like the proverbial lost prince um, at this conference. Albeit, by all accounts, not, not huge numbers of people on the ground at this conference, which is quite striking. But, but in a sense, his job is done because he's managed to influence British politics to such a degree that the mainstream, really, of the Conservative Party uh, sings dances to his tune. Um, and, and in a sense, his work is done. So I'd be very surprised if he ever took the offer of a plush safe seat to get into the, into the House of Commons because... Uh, in some respects, the stage is too small for him, given the impact that he's had on British politics in the last 10 years. I understand that feeling. Kevin, uh, what about poor Northern Ireland, left with, uh, with the, the DUP against the world? What's going to happen there? Everything is going to hinge on the next three weeks. Um, there's a meeting tomorrow night of the DUP's, the Democratic Unionist Party's officer class, where we're, we're, we're told that Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP, the leader of the DUP, and he has many supporters um, that, 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 that I think recognise that boycotting the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive is a council of despair. Doesn't believe anywhere for unionism, and I think they would rather go back in at this stage with a, with a few more concessions that the British government can perhaps winkle out of the, uh, of the position that it's got, because it can't do very much about um, the, the, the DUP's core demands scrapping the. Windsor framework or the Northern Ireland Protocol, as was that ship has sailed, and I think I think the DUP um, kind of liberals, if I can put it like that, is perhaps an oxymoron. Uh, liberal DUP types, but I think they recognise, you know, we, we can't just hang outside because we've got an NHS that's crashing. We're getting blamed for the collapse in public services. One thing and another, it's going to lead to, you know, political repercussions at some point. So they've got this officer class meeting tomorrow. That 120 people. And I think Donaldson is going to try and float across, you know, look, we need to we need to try and think seriously about how we're going to back in. Now, 
in a couple of weeks' time, on Friday the 13th, so obviously what could go wrong, is the DUP's annual conference. And I think that's the, that's the pinch point. Because I think, I think what we'll see is the British government try and, as I say, confect a little bouquet of micro-measures that, that might allow Donaldson to say, look, we've managed to win some more concessions. This wins a framework. We now have to own these and we need to go back in. Because what happens then in a week and a half after that is the US-led investment conference that President Biden has organised and promised when he was over in Northern Ireland in May for the Good Friday Agreement um, celebrations. Now, it would be, I think, a perverse outcome if you ended up with US investors, possibly with checkbooks open, metaphorical checkbooks open, looking to invest, and there is nobody running Northern Ireland for them to meet. And it's, it's a humiliation for Northern Ireland, but, but really this would be a humiliation for Rishi Sunak, because in 18 months' time, if the opinion polls are correct and Rishi Sunak is on a hiding to nothing and he's booted out, Rishi Sunak is going to be looking for, for an international job of some sort and he's going to want to go to President Biden, assuming President Biden is still there or his administration. And, and you know, if he can say, look, I delivered Northern Ireland a restoration and, and I managed to fix that problem, that puts him in a, in possibly in a reasonable position. If, if he can't deliver, then he's the man who can't deliver. And, and the one thing American politicians abhor is, is people who, who can't deliver. And so, so I think there's a lot of pressure behind the scenes from the top of British politics to say to Jeffrey Donaldson and the DUP leadership, this is crunch time. Having won this boycott leads absolutely nowhere. And if we don't get the restoration of the Assembly and the Executive, the British government will start to deal with the Irish government and we will have some kind of joint stewardship of Northern Ireland, which the unionists could hate as well. So they're in, a, they're, in a, they're in a situation where the position they're in is not great, but their position can get worse. And of course, one of the provisos in the Good Friday is the border poll, is the referendum on Northern Ireland's constitutional status. And I think what starts to happen is if, there are no, if, if Northern Ireland is seen to be a place that cannot function that, that that timeline about when we get to that border poll just gets nearer and nearer. So, so you know, the DUP and unionists are in are in a, a kind of the can't win here because the border poll gets nearer, but stewardship of some sort starts to take shape. Northern Ireland can't succeed. Um, and, and this 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 boycott, this nearly two-year boycott of the Assembly and the Executive has led nowhere. All it's done is see is see public services in Northern Ireland decimated and declined. Um, and as I say, they're starting to get the blame for that. So Donaldson's a realist. You know, he's been around Westminster for a long time. He can see that actually the ground beneath their feet is, is crumbling. So I think he probably wants to, to fight to do a deal, but he needs some support to get across that line. But it's up to Northern Ireland, of this number 10, the leadership of the DUP, to do what they need to do in terms of the choreography to get us across the line, get Stormont back up and running just before the Americans touch down on their plane. And I think, I think it's achievable. Because I think the stakes of not making this happen are so great for everybody that I think I think the reality will bite. Friday the 13th, huh? As you say, what could possibly go wrong? Kevin Marr, as always, thank you for that tour de force. Let me take a quick break and then it's your calls all the way to the hour. And in the second hour, the one and only Brian Berletic. You don't want to miss him. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Here's Brian Belotic, large as life, in the middle of the night where he is. Brian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. 
Now, uh, the defense minister of the Netherlands, I know it sounds like an oxymoron in a country that resisted Hitler for less than one single day, but they have a defense minister. Of course, being achingly politically correct, it's a woman defense minister. And she said today that the money they're putting into Ukraine is a cheap way to resist Russia. It's cheap, of course, only if you hate the Ukrainian people who are dying in vast numbers for the money that is being put in, in order that they can satisfy themselves that they are resisting Russia. That really is the way that NATO looks at this conflict, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, once again, thank you for having me on. It's always an honor and a pleasure. I think this is part of the veneer falling off of this entire proxy war. The collective West has been waging against Russia in Ukraine from 2014 onward. Uh, it really has been a process of the West conditioning Ukraine into a proxy to use as a battering ram against the Russian Federation. And now we see this whole process coming full circle, all of the propaganda evaporating and, the, and their true colors finally showing. Uh, we've heard similar sentiments expressed in the United States. We've heard people in the U.S. Congress talk about how this is a great investment, how the Ukrainians will fight to the last man, and how this is going to ultimately deter China, but deter China from doing what? Existing? And uh, I think people uh, should pay attention and listen and believe their ears now that, that we hear uh, the actual people behind this proxy war finally finally saying what everyone else, what you and I have been saying for so many uh, months since this, this special military operation began, that this was a proxy war all along uh, at the expense of the Ukrainian people, not, not for or in defense of the Ukrainian people. Well, you're absolutely right about American uh, statespeople, if we can call them that. Uh, Lindsey Graham, for example, he goes one better than the, the Dutch defense ministress. He says, as you've just alluded, that actually we are putting money in and weapons in for a huge loss of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians in order to deter China. So the people in Ukraine are dying for Taiwan. And the people who are paying taxes in all these ailing Western economies are paying money for Ukraine in defense of Taiwan. How's that for a three-dimensional chess? And, and then it's even worse when people actually understand the realities about the status of Taiwan, how even the U.S. State Department officially recognizes it as part of China, meaning that all of this antagonism toward China over Taiwan is actually the United States violating China's sovereignty and violating international law. The U.N. recognizes Taiwan as part of China. So really, it is one proxy war being waged against Russia to support uh, the beginnings of another proxy war to be waged against China. And both of these proxy wars are fought uh, without justification. And it's a continuation of what we've seen the collective West do everywhere from Afghanistan to Iraq and from Libya to Syria. And now it's 
spread into Eastern Europe. Maybe you could say spreading into Eastern Europe again after Serbia. And now East Asia is under threat. The, uh, the situation on the diplomatic political battlefield is now going very badly for NATO. That's for sure. Uh, Joe Biden looks like a dead duck. Uh, by next week, Donald Trump might be the speaker of the House of Representatives. I'm not making that up. It's a real live possibility now. Not many people believe that Biden will fight and win uh, the presidency next year. The new prime minister of Slovakia won his election on the explicit platform of no more support for the war. The Polish government, which was once in the vanguard uh, of uh, involvement in Ukraine, is now under fear in a general ele- pre-general election campaign, uh, distancing itself so fast that it's all a blur. One doesn't know what they mean, what they don't mean, but the one thing's for sure, it's all bad news for Zelensky. And then we find his wife spending a million dollars, one million one hundred thousand dollars, to be precise. I've just looked at the receipt for jewels in Cartier in New York. It all has the feel uh, uh, of something, a house of cards about to fall. Precisely. That, that, that is uh, exactly what is happening. And all of this political turmoil we see unfolding across the collective West. Uh, we hear pundits in the West claiming that this is Russia dividing, dividing the West, dividing Ukraine's allies against each other. But in reality, it is the fundamental lies uh, that this entire conflict have been built on. They're, they're unraveling and with it, all of these I guess you could say alliances or at least relationships built on perpetuating this proxy war in Ukraine against Russia. And it's only going to get worse. Uh, The situation on the ground in Ukraine, the so-called offensive has been uh, raging for four months. It has made no progress at all against Russian positions. The West is running out of ammunition and weapons. They do not have the industrial capacity to make more. They they cannot sustain this conflict. And, and so what are they going to do when they run out of weapons? They run out of ammunition. Uh, the US at least can continue printing money out of thin air. But if you have nothing to buy with that money, what good does it do you? So now we see political turmoil. We see politicians uh, turning uh, toward their self-preservational instincts. And it's only going to continue unraveling into chaos in, in the West. And we've seen this again many, many times. We saw this all unfold regarding Afghanistan, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, uh, we, uh, we had the, the wife, former wife of the great Muhammad Ali on the show uh, on, on Sunday. And I was thinking a lot about Ali's last great triumph over George Foreman rope-a-dope, where he leant on the ropes and soaked up the punishment from the fearsome George Foreman before exploding and, and dispatching him in a, a, I promise you, an epiphany of joy uh, for most of us, certainly for me. Uh, isn't that what Russia's doing now? Rope-a-dope? Uh, they have a triple line of defense along the territories they have taken. 
uh, the Ukrainians are not going to even reach the first line of those defenses, never mind breach them and get through two more. Uh, is that not a metaphor that you can recognize that at some point Russia is going to spring forward uh, just like Muhammad Ali and uh, land some knockout blows? Absolutely. That is exactly what we're seeing. And um, this so-called progress that Ukraine is making, taking a handful of villages. And if you look at the maps, detailed maps, you will see that it's still taking place all within the security zone ahead of Russia's uh, layered main defenses. Uh, at the same time, Ukraine has exhausted its offensive potential. They had a finite amount of artillery and artillery ammunition, of armored vehicles, of tanks and armored personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles. And they've gone through the majority of all of this. And the, the West simply has no more to give them. There was a, def a deficiency even before the offensive was launched. And at the same time, the West is running out of weapons to supply Ukraine. Amid this offensive and onward, Russia has expanded its own military uh, industrial production. And these are facts that you and I have talked about for months on this show. And now these are facts that finally the New York Times is reporting in the pages of its newspapers. We can read about how uh, Russia is making seven times more uh, arms and ammunition than the collective West, not just the US or Europe, but them together. Now, I mean, you've got to hand it to Putin. Uh, he's picked two new speakers in a week, uh, a new speaker in the Canadian Parliament and a new speaker uh, coming up in, in the United States, because that's the kind of absurdity they still uh, bleat, isn't it? Uh, anything that goes wrong for them is uh, Putin propaganda, misleading people and so on. And that's the basis on which uh, they then move to close down uh, voices uh, that uh, they don't like because they're reaching more and more people uh, with an alternative view on the war. I mean, the game's up for these people, even if they have not yet conceded it. Absolutely. And we're we're all in danger of that. So we, we can see the desperation setting in. And I, I remember many, many years ago, uh, when I was much younger, and I remember the West always saying about these so-called dictatorships and how them banning media in their country, how that was always a sign of weakness. And now we see the West leading the world in censorship, banning media. Uh, they've uprooted all Russian media entirely uh, within their borders. Uh, they're planning on doing the same thing with Chinese media. And and what is the reason for this? Is it because Russia and China are saying anything that is untrue? Uh, I just uh, explained how the New York Times is now saying things that we have been saying for many months, things that had been labeled as Russian propaganda. So uh, it is, it is absolutely desperation setting in. They're not looking at the fundamentals that are creating this and driving this problem. And until they do that, the desperation will only grow because their problems will only grow. I mean, the end game uh, is not clear in the fog of uh, war, and much of it will depend on how far uh, Russia wants to go. But my mind's eye tells me uh, that the, the end game will be 
approximately half of Ukrainian territory, including all of the coast and all of the east of the Dnipro, will be new parts of Novorossiya. Uh, they will effectively be part of Russia. And then the rest, it's inconceivable that the Russians could leave uh, a NATO statelet, however much of a stump it was, uh, in being. So there would have to be regime change in Kiev. Otherwise, you'd get what you've got in, in Kosovo, which is effectively NATO-occupied stump statelet, which can be activated at any point, which it currently is being activated in Kosovo, uh, to cause problems for, in that case, Serbia, in this case, Russia. So it doesn't just end with the partition of the country, does it? It would have to end with a government in Kiev that was friendly to Russia and entirely neutral and for all time. Yes, I, I think that's a, a very reasonable assessment. Of course, nobody can predict the future, but we've seen many Russian leaders begin to hint toward this, this type of outcome. Uh, we have to remember also that even while this conflict rages within Ukraine, there are many other factors unfolding out, outside. Uh, geopolitically, we, we are watching multipolarism rise. We're watching U.S.-led unipolarism fade. The dollar is weakening. Uh, the uh, economies and industries of the multipolar world are surpassing the collective West. And when you add all of those things up with the situation taking place within Ukraine's borders and uh, Russia and Ukraine fighting this conflict, I, I think all of these things will drive the, the ultimate outcome. I think the West is going to be pushed into a corner where it's going to have to make a decision. Uh, we see that the, the tighter they try to grip onto Ukraine, the more everything starts to unravel, eventually I think they're going to have to realize there, there are limits to their power. They're going to have to negotiate finally in good faith with Russia uh, all the way up until now. They have not. Uh, but I don't think they're going to be able to get away with that anymore. They're not going to be able to get away with it because Russia will not let them. And I think even the internal factors within the West will no longer make this plausible. Lastly, Brian, I'm always grateful for your time, especially given the hour for you. I've just made a film about Taiwan. Uh, it's in its final uh, editing stages now. Uh, what do you see as the overarching, it's 74 years now since the People's Republic, uh, they're very patient uh, people. And I pose the question in my film, uh, will China wait for the apple to fall from the tree, uh, or will it feel that it has to shake that tree before uh, the Americans turn it into a fortress that is an actual threat to any reunification ever uh, with uh, China? How do you see the relative balance uh, of these two approaches right now? I think that's a very good and important question. China has been extremely patient. Many people might not know this, but the United States actually has troops stationed in Taiwan. And th that is the ultimate provocation to 
acknowledge that Taiwan is part of Chinese territory, but then to station troops there, knowing that you have no approval at all from Beijing to do that, uh, to openly and constantly promote separatism in Taiwan, uh, again, while also having a one China policy. So the U.S. is doing absolutely everything it can to provoke China. I think the reason why China has not allowed itself to be provoked is because they understand that time is on their side. Even the the most uh, the, the worst type of provocation imaginable, I think they understand that in the long term, what the U.S. is doing is not sustainable. Even if they were to try to turn Taiwan into some sort of fortress, I think eventually uh, in order to avoid war and the destruction of Taiwan, because frankly, that is what the U.S. is talking about and planning for. I, I think they will endure a lot in, in order to avoid conflict. They have Taiwan's best interests in mind. The U.S. does not. Brian Belotek, as always, a tour de horizon with the man behind the new atlas, a new atlas that's being redrawn right in front of our eyes. Brian, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Will the deep state bring down Elon Musk over Ukraine? You've only got about 20 minutes left to vote yes or no. That's what I want to hear. Still more fragrant is the wonderful Norma in Bristol, a legend. Now she's on the line. Norma, what would you like to say? Hello, George. Um, no, I wanted to just Hi. bring to your attention um, about China, because um, I've been watching a lot of sport that's been there, and it's been so refreshing. They first of all had a China Open snooker, which was um, good to watch. But now we've got the tennis. There's been tennis in um, Beijing and in Shanghai, and you know the hospitality that they've the Chinese actually have given us. It's been really a joy to watch because just for once there's no politics it's just been a sort of feel good factor there and I, it's another refreshing angle instead of all this about Taiwan and China and wars and, so I just thought I'd put another angle on it um, It's a very important uh, angle and one that I've been following myself uh, China has a population of one and a half billion people. So if they take up any sport seriously, uh, they stand a very good chance uh, of sweeping the world with it. And the first place I saw that happening, I know you're a tennis fan, Norma, and I'm not particularly, uh, was in snooker. Uh, I misspent much of my youth in the snooker halls uh, in Scotland. So I follow the game very closely and I began to see more and more and more brilliant Chinese snooker players. Uh, and of course, there's so many Chinese uh, to choose from uh, that the uh, Chinese snooker uh, cohort uh, is beginning to sweep all before it. And as you pointed out to me, uh, some time ago, uh, they're now doing the same in China, in tennis rather, in China. And again, if you've got one and a half billion people and everyone really gets stuck into the old tennis uh, racket, you're going to sweep the boards and 
that's going to happen. The only thing that hasn't worked so far is football in China. As you know, Norman, I spend a lot of time in China. I would have moved my entire family there uh, with me, uh, but for the fact that my son, Torren, is a football protege with a very yeah. real shout of making it yeah. as a professional in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the professional game. Yeah. And so I asked around, uh, why hasn't football taken off in China? And the answer I got was a rather uh, sobering one. Uh, it's mm -hmm. corruption. It is uh, gambling. Mm -hmm. Because the Chinese are also very enthusiastic yeah. gamblers. Yeah, the possibility of tampering with the outcome of football matches is a very real one. Otherwise, Torren would have been playing for Shanghai United already, <laughs> never mind Manchester United. <laughs> Last word from you, Norma. Well, I just thought it was a different angle. And the last word from me, basically, is I just wanted to point out that my husband's got 10 weeks, 10 weeks only, of the NHS government money for his end-of-life care. After that, we'd have to be um, means-tested. But my daughter and me are going to see some nursing homes tomorrow, and hopefully he'll be more comfy in a nice nursing home than staying in hospital. So that was the update on him. It is Well, I'm glad you updated us. I didn't want to ask you in case you didn't want to talk about it, but it's really come to something. When we've got money, billions, to send to a war which has nothing to do with us in the Ukraine to decide whether Kupiansk is on one side of a line, on a map or other, when it's been in four different countries in the last hundred years, we've got unlimited money for that. But Norma's husband now has 10 weeks to die. If he dies within 10 weeks, it'll cost the family nothing other than the taxes they've paid all of their life into the British Exchequer, which promised from the cradle to the grave care in a national health service free at the point of use. But Norma's husband has to die within 10 weeks or face the prospect that his widow and his children will be potentially bankrupted by having to pay for private care for their husband and for their father. If I sound angry about that, I could not be more angry about that. Norma, I'm sorry. I hope I haven't upset you. Let's read this email from Wayne. Good evening, George. Is there any reason why we could not rid ourselves of the first-past-the-post election system and replace it with a proportional representation election system? If so, would that not go some way to bringing about more balance? Well, of course, Wayne, and I have supported that all of my political life. I even pointed out to Mr. Blair and Mr. Brown when they were enjoying landslide election victories, but not a landslide victory in the percentage of the vote, but landslide electoral majorities, 
Now you should legislate for proportional representation. And you can defend it by saying, we are doing this even though it is against our interest. Because if you introduce proportional representation, there would never be a Rishi Sunak premiership again, or a Boris Johnson premiership again. Because the great majority of British people don't vote for the Conservative Party. They got an 80-seat parliamentary majority on a minority of the vote, even though they were facing the incredibly maligned uh, Jeremy Corbyn. So, yes, of course, that's what we should do. But we will not do it because it would require the people who are in Parliament right now on an unfair electoral system that got them into Parliament, we would be counting on them to legislate to put themselves out of business, parliamentary business at least, and they will not, I promise you, do that. Comments uh, on Patreon uh, from Miss, uh, sorry, M.N. Nazim, uh, commenting on Tony Blair says, all the leaders of the Western world will be encouraged by the money Tony Blair is making. They will all be encouraged to venture into weak nations and kill the innocents and make a killing thereafter. Sickos. That is indeed the thesis of my film, The Killings of Tony Blair. You haven't seen that yet. You really need to, to get the uh, full SP, as we say. Quack Quacks says this expose of Blair says everything that is necessary to convict him of the most major war crimes that can be committed. We just need the sentence to be announced and acted upon. Now, I better tell you about the poll. Uh, on, uh, on Telegram, 43% thought the deep state would bring Elon Musk down. On Twitter, only 36% thought so. On the YouTube community poll, 37% thought so. And on the YouTube stream, 41% thought so. So most people think that the deep state will not bring down Elon Musk. But a substantial minority, Mr. Musk, seem to think that they will, or at least might. Thank you, all of you who voted. Thank you, all of you, for being here for the mother of all talk shows this evening. We had difficulties with the telephone lines, and that's why most callers tonight didn't get through. But if you were one of those that tried, I promise you that we will prioritize your call uh, on Sunday at 7 p.m. UK time uh, for the mothership, the original uh, mother of all talk shows. I don't know if Donald Trump will, in the end, go for the speakership of the U.S. Congress as an observer of political theater. Uh, of course, I would be very delighted if he did so. It would make the next 12 months amongst the most entertaining uh, and thrilling, even, uh, that there has been in US politics. But he might be better advised 
to keep his powder dry and to continue raising big, big money and making big, big rallies all over the United States with a view to defeating all these fake lawfare issues uh, that he is now facing, which grow more and more ludicrous by the day. The case in New York, a civil case, a civil case, alleges that he inflated the value of his properties in order to obtain loans, loans which he long ago repaid with interest, and thus no victim in this civil case exists, except a district attorney that ran for office on the promise that she would make lawfare against the then president of the United States. I feel sure that Trump will prevail over all of these things. But at the end of the day, it's not really my business, at least not directly. What is my business is that I no longer know for sure if when I get up to leave this studio this evening, there are going to be police officers at the door wishing to interview me about the contents of my speech in the course of this show. And I mean that. I am no longer sure if that will happen to me as it's happening to more and more and more people in the United Kingdom today. My father, God rest his soul, went to his grave believing that Britain was the best country in the world, not least for the quality of its freedom of speech. You can hear him turning in his grave. Thanks for being here. I hope I'm here on Sunday, in which case, join me at 7 p.m. UK time for the mother of all talk shows. And do please bring somebody with you. Follow me on every one of these platforms, because you don't know where I'm going to have to end up exclusively at the end of the day. <laughs>